Welcome to Contagious Thinking, coming to you from the CBR, University of Glasgow Centre for Virus Research. This week, we're switching to a whole new phylum, as we're joined by Dr. Jean-Luc Imler from the University of Strasbourg, who speaks to us about insect immunity and the value of research into fruit flies. Hi, I'm Jack Hurst. I'm a second-year PhD student, and I study influenza virus. Hi, I'm Douglas Stewart. I'm a lab tech in the lab of Sam Wilson, working on HIV and innate immunity. I'm Jean-Luc Imler. I'm professor at the University of Strasbourg and director of uh, the Institute of Molecular and Cellular Biology uh, in Strasbourg, and we work on um, innate immunity using insects as models. So that's um, a really interesting talk you gave us before we recorded this. Um, but before we start talking about that, can you give us an overview of your, your background, sort of where you started out and how you got into science in the first place? Yes, uh, there was no plan to go into science. Uh, actually, uh, I didn't know much what I wanted to do uh, uh, of my life after my uh, bachelor degree. But there was one thing I knew that is that I thought I knew that it was that I didn't want to do uh, higher education of uh, uh, and research. And actually, turned down. The, I applied to some of uh, these uh, schools in France, and when I was sele- selected for other schools, I chose not to go <laughs> because I knew this is something I didn't want to do. So uh, I had no preconceived. Uh, I had preconceived ideas <laughs> against science, and uh, and I only uh, became interested um, after an internship in in the lab, and I realized that uh, in fact I didn't know what science was about, and I really enjoyed uh, my first uh, internship doing molecular biology, and it was in a plant pathogenesis uh, lab. And um, after that, I uh, decided to go uh, for a PhD uh, in cell signaling, and I stayed in uh, in science. So how do you go from there to working on um, flies? Well, actually, uh, yeah, flies came late <laughs> uh, because, uh, yeah, it took me. Uh, so I knew I wanted to do science, so I did a PhD. But I only, I, I always in mind that I didn't want to be a, uh, <clears throat> a researcher. I thought I would go to industry, and so for my postdoc, I uh, went to uh, the San Francisco Bay Area to work in a biotech company. And the time it was the beginning of the humanized antibodies, so it was a company doing. Uh, um, humanized uh, antibodies for therapy <clears throat> and I didn't take me long to realize that it was a mistake and uh, <laughs> it didn't like uh, it was very repetitive and uh, lacked the uh, unexpected uh, discoveries these very pleasant moments where you find something that you had no idea yeah. and that, uh, uh, I've heard about those you, 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 you <laughs> <could find laughs> this. your time will come yes. so I, the, yeah I was lacking the excitement and um, and so fortunately enough the Bay Area is rich in uh, opportunities there are many excellent labs and uh, and so I ended up in another institute where um, which is, was called the Dnex Research Institute and it was a privately funded institute um, working on the control of the differentiation and proliferation of blood cells uh, by cytokines it was funded by uh, sharing plow and this is where many cytokines were discovered, many cytokine receptors. And this is where um, TH, the TH1, TH2 paradigm was uh, discovered by Tim Mossman and Bob Kaufman. And so, of course, being there, I was not an immunologist by training myself, but uh, being there and discussing with the other postdocs uh, and uh, scientists working there, one of the big questions was um, what triggers the differentiation from TH0 to a TH1 or a, a TH2? 
And it was known that uh, the, you're better off to fight a viral infection with TH1 than with TH2. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you're better off to find a, paras- um, a warm infection with TH2 than TH1. So they had, there was a logic behind uh, that uh, triggered differentiation into one type or the other. And, um, and of course, this was not coming from adaptive immunity. So it had to be innate immunity. So this was one of the first uh, things that sensitized me, sensitized me to uh, innate immunity. And the other uh, thing was that uh, the period I was there was between uh, 1989 and 1991 or 92. And this was the, the time when the first knockout mice were generated. And the phenotype of the first knockout mice for cytokines were very disappointing because of the redundancy between the, the cytokines. And this also synthesized me to the importance of simple models where there is less uh, functional redundancy and um, but of course, it was not enough to uh, to tell me, okay, go and work on flies. Uh, as often in life, it came, it came from uh, uh, encounters, unexpected encounters. So I moved back to France to work in a biotech company. <clears throat> and again, uh, I was not terribly uh, happy <laughs> of doing uh, that. I was doing a gene therapy against uh, cystic fibrosis. The interesting thing for the rest of my career is that we were using viral vectors. So this is where I learned to work with uh, viruses, to grow viruses and titrate viruses. Um, and then uh, I uh, met Jules Hoffman, who uh, was working on insect uh, immunity. And <clears throat> the, this is the time when they first found that uh, antimicrobial peptides uh, in uh, insects and flies in particular were regulated by NF-kappa B proteins. So it was the first indication that there was something evolutionarily conserved. Yeah, they crop up a lot in human uh, infections as well, right? NF-kappa B? Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah, NF-kappa B is a... Uh, <clears throat> was discovered by uh, David Baltimore and it plays a central role in uh, inflammation. And so it was interesting to find it involved in something that looks like inflammation in, in insects. And so I, I was very uh, interested by this idea. And of course, Josephman was looking with, for people with uh, experience in um, immunology and cytokine. Which, which I felt because the, the fact finding an FKPB suggesting that there was a cytokine uh, activating it. And, um, mm-hmm. and this is how I joined his, uh, his lab and started to work on flies. Yeah. <laughs> so I was given, and I was 30 years old. So uh, it means, yes, that you should take your time. So it's worth <laughs> taking one's time. And, uh, and there was no preconceived ideas. Yeah. Um. I guess we should ask why why flies why uh, simple model systems. So the um, the flies is is interesting. It's a great model to do genetics, uh, and it's been used for genetics since the beginning of the twentieth century. And so there is a fantastic number of tools that um, that exist. And fly geneticists are extremely inventive, and uh, they continue to be extremely inventive. And a lot of tools that are then are used in other systems. So, for example, the uh, Galfor driver system uh, was invented by fly people and then used in other models. Um, and so um, there's all these tools. Uh, and then uh, it's easy to do transgenics. Um, <clears throat> and the, it's cheap to maintain because they're very small. They don't eat a lot. <laughs> uh, and they reproduce very effectively and rapidly. So it takes uh, 10 days 
to, to get uh, adult flies and new generations. Mm. And one of the first thing I read this book, they also, this people, it's a very nice community. Uh, the, and I, I must say, I'm not uh, part of it because you, by training, I'm not a Drosophila geneticist. So it's uh, a club. Yeah. <laughs> and I use them and I respect them and I admire them a lot, but I, I don't think I'll ever be in this club because I, uh, I use them, but I was not uh, trained. But, um, the, I read one of the first book I read that they have a good sense of humor and it was explaining that uh, actually it's fantastic that it takes 10 days to get a generation because um, <clears throat> when you want to do the next generation, you know, when you meet people who work with flies, very often you talk with them and at one point they will stop and say, oh, well, forget, forgive me, I have to go to take care of my virgins. <laughs> <laughs> and you're, geez, what are you talking about? <laughs> so the story is that when the, the flies emerge from the pupa, they are sexually immature for six hours at 25 degrees. So uh, it means that uh, when you do genetics, of course, it's important that you take females that uh, if you want the right male to fecundate, you have to uh, separate them from the other uh, bad guys before you, you do the cross. So the way you do this is that uh, every six hours you collect your flies and you separate the boys from the girls. Um, and then you, you have a virgin uh, females. Okay. And so when you do a, a cross, <clears throat> 10 days after you start the cross, you will start to have the, the progeny uh, coming up. And then if you want to do to select the genotype you want and to go for another round of crossing, it means you have to separate. The, the and so if the cycle was one week, you start your cross on the Friday. The flies will come the next Friday. It means you have to come during the weekend. <laughs> and 10 days is like perfect. So, yeah. <laughs> so what the book said is that don't never tell this to your supervisor, but always do your cross on the Friday <laughs> because then, then you, you start to get the virgins on the Monday. Nice. <laughs> so the Duffler are really easy to work with, but does that ease sort of make them less relevant to sort of other animals? Can you generalize from them? Yes, yeah, so this is a very good question. So you uh, you you cannot uh, in general. No, you might generalize, <laughs> but uh, not always. Okay. okay? Uh, and so a number of things that um, are, uh, have been discovered in flies um, were later shown to be relevant for um, other animals, uh, including mammals. And of course, for when it comes to innate immunity, uh, one of the receptors that regulate this NF-kappa-B uh, NF activity that I was mentioning in the beginning is uh, a toll receptor. And this was the first discovery that toll receptors <coughs> regulate uh, innate immunity. And this prompted uh, Charlie Genoway and others to look for this type of receptors in mammals. They had been found, but nobody had connect them to immune uh, response. So some aspects of the immune response are uh, conserved. They say, um, uh, one must not forget that the evolutionary distance between insects and mammals is considerable. We're talking about 800 million years to 1 billion years. And so of course there's room for innovations to, to come in. And one must be careful not to overinterpret things and to expect that everything you find in flies is relevant for mammals. And this is something I'm uh, very, uh, I wouldn't say uh, concerned is the right word uh, about, uh, because I think there's tendency now is the, the pressure to publish and to have impact. There's really a, a pressure uh, to um, translate the, all the findings made in model organisms to uh, 
the human organism and mice. And I think this is abusive and, uh, and you do not expect, uh, it doesn't make sense that everything is conserved, especially uh, in the context of host pathogen interactions. Sure. Because the host all the time has to adapt to new parasites and you must, and so there's this constant uh, arms race between the immune system and the, the parasites or viruses uh, that uh, evolve suppressor mechanisms. And so you expect these things to evolve rapidly. And so, um, yeah. Okay. Okay. So are there maybe more parallels between Drosophila and say mosquitoes, which are also of interest in? Right. So, uh, so yeah, we dealt with the the story of the um, uh, comparison between flies and mammals. Uh, then you can also learn things about uh, the resistance of vector mosquitoes uh, against uh, infections. And so, for example, uh, the the best um, uh, it is now well established that uh, a key uh, mechanism controlling uh, um, infection by Plasmodium. Uh, parasites in uh, Anopheles mosquitoes is uh, a molecule uh, called TEP1 related to the C3 uh, complement uh, in, uh, in mammals. Um, and this is a gene that was first discovered in flies because it's strongly upregulated in flies uh, and shown to be conserved in mosquitoes and turned out to be a major uh, gene to control uh, parasites. And in the context of uh, viral infections, which is uh, the, the focus of uh, my lab, um, <clears throat> Uh, a number of genes and pathways that are involved in the control of viruses and infection in flies are also present in Aedes mosquitoes and are important to control uh, viruses. Mm. So uh, we're gearing up now in Strasbourg to... Uh, so it's been frustrating to see that uh, some of the things we found in flies we could not exploit in mosquitoes and to see other groups then uh, making uh, reports that this was also important in mosquitoes. And so now we will have, uh, later this year, we will have a, a facility, uh, maybe not as fancy as the one that you have at the CVR, <laughs> but we will have a, a, a still a nice facility uh, to work on uh, uh, mosquitoes infected by dengue or Zika. And so we will be able to compete with the CVR. <laughs> well, I hope he loses. <laughs> um, so, in general, so how? I mean, I guess it's a huge question, obviously. But in what what are sort of the common ways in which flies can sort of respond to, say, viral infections, and how does it differ from what people might be familiar with in terms of how humans respond? Right. So the central there's a major difference, uh, and this is that uh, the default response uh, is uh, RNA interference. Uh, which is uh, very important to control all types of viral infection in uh, in insects, and uh, whereas in mammals uh, and vertebrates in general, it's the interferon system. So it's an inducible response. Uh, cells are infected, produce interferon, which uh, is a cytokine that will uh, warn the surrounding cells of the uh, the viral infection uh, danger. And <clears throat> RNAi, this is controversial. So uh, there are reports saying that it is uh, also. Uh, involved in um, in mammals to control uh, viruses. Uh, and it may be in some tissues, in particular uh, undifferentiated uh, cells uh, early in development. Um, but I don't believe it is uh, comparable to what you have in either plants and, uh, and mammals. Um, and this is one of the... Um, the fascinating uh, question is why. So because uh, RNAi provides such... Uh, 
an elegant system to deal with uh, infections and why uh, was it lost and replaced by the interfin system in uh, invertebrates we're not sure yeah. so when you say lost does that mean we think it was present in a, some sort of common ancestor <clears throat> the, well the fact that yeah the, that you fact that you have rna based uh, responses or nucleic acid based uh, responses uh, in plants in uh, invertebrates mm -hmm. uh, and also you can the, the crispr system in bacteria is also a nucleic acid based mm -hmm. uh, antiviral system uh, in prokaryotes uh, argues that this is an ancestral uh, response um, so the, and I think we're here just in this um, uh, fascinating area of um, evolution, co-evolution, because what's interesting is that uh, some of the key players of the interferon uh, pathway in mammals, uh, they have a common uh, evolutionary roots with the RNAi system. For example, the rig-like receptors, so these are cytosolic receptors uh, that uh, recognize um, viral RNAs uh, and trigger interferon. Um, they uh, contain a dead box helicase domain. And this dead box helicase domain is present in Dicer. It's the, the same. They have a specific uh, motif that is only present in this family of helicases. Uh, so Dicer is what kicks off the RNAi. And so probably the probably the um, this uh, Dicer related. Uh, so you could refer to the real like receptors uh, as um, Dicer like helicases. So something that had to do with uh, RNAi in the beginning, mm -hmm. and uh, in mammals, um, in or in vertebrates. Uh, this helicase has been coupled to probably through the exon shuffling uh, mechanism to uh, card domains, so caspase recruitment domains, which are um, uh, homotypic protein-protein uh, interaction domains, which allow them to recruit um, signaling molecules and to activate uh, mm -hmm. interferon. That's cool. Yeah. Um, so, okay, I think yeah. we're running a little tight on time, sadly, because yeah. we've had an hour's worth of talking and we've none of it in. No. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Just to wrap up then, um, if you couldn't be a scientist, what other job would you be doing? <laughs> um, I think I uh, one thing I uh, enjoy a lot uh, about science, I, um, I enjoy the doing, uh, being in the lab and doing uh, experiments, but I'm not really... Uh, I would not define myself as someone uh, manual, and um, so I had to do it. But I much prefer the reading and the, and writing, and uh, and I enjoy a lot actually, uh, yeah, writing uh, mm -hmm. the articles. And so I could see myself either yeah working in journalism or okay. writing okay. novels <laughs> or <laughs> fiction. Yeah, yes. so why not? Yeah. Okay, cool. Well, um, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. You're welcome. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening, and thank you to Jean-Luc and Douglas for joining me for this episode. If you enjoyed this topic, we've got loads of past content on arboviruses and insects, which you can find at cvrblog.myportfolio.com. If you want to get in touch with us, email us at cvrcontagiousthinking at gmail.com, and please subscribe to us on your podcast catcher. I'm Jack, and you've been listening to Contagious Thinking. Join us next week, where we're hearing about how the UK virology community responded to the Ebola outbreak a couple of years ago, for which we're joined by Professor Ian Goodfellow from the University of Cambridge. See you then.